All right, y'all, let me pray for us. We're going to jump into Acts here. Father, we thank you for all the ways that you provide for us, bless us and sustain us. We thank you for the treasure that we have in your written word that guides us and directs us and uh, still speaks as powerfully today as it did when these words were first written uh, 2000, over 2000 years ago at this point. And so we pray that you'll help us by the work of your spirit to understand, comprehend the things that we're going to be studying together. And I pray that you would bless uh, everybody who's part of this class to give them a deeper, richer knowledge of our Lord Jesus and his grace towards us and also uh, the great inheritance that we have in him in the kingdom that's coming that can't be slowed down or stopped. And we are way closer today than we were when Luke uh, penned this le uh, letter, uh, this work uh, so many years ago. And so we thank you for all these blessings for Jesus' great namesake. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all, we're going to jump right in. If you will, uh, everybody should have a notebook with notes there. Uh, let's jump over to page 13. We're going we're to start Acts today. And today's mainly going to be some uh, overview, um, introduction, tying together. Those of you that were with me in the Luke study last year, we're going to talk a little bit about that and how all these things fit together. And so I just want to start by reading the first few verses in Acts. And I, those are in your notes on page 13 down at the bottom that says the prologue. And then you've got the first five verses of Acts. So let me, let me read that, and once I read it, you'll see why we're starting there. Um, Luke writes, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during the 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, I wanted to start there because, as you can see, Luke begins right in verse 1, as I wrote in the first narrative. So uh, Acts is the second half of this longer narrative that began in the Gospel of Luke. Last year, we studied through Luke. Now, I don't know if y'all remember, but at the beginning, same time last year when we started up, I was foolishly thinking that we were going to do just a general overview of Luke and Acts in two semesters. And as one of my good friends said of me, man, you can't even do your introduction in the same amount of time that people can preach a whole sermon, you know? So... Uh, so we decided to break it up into two years. And so we're going to continue on in Acts and we're going to be making some connections. Uh, it wasn't necessary to be part of that study last year. There's a lot of things we're going to go back and tie together because there are so many things that were introduced in Luke that just come right over into Acts. Some really interesting connections. Um, Luke, um, th this writing, I don't know if you've ever you know, thought about this before, but Luke and Acts together makes up about a third of the New Testament. Uh, this, is, these are the, this is the longest continuous writing in the New Testament. So there's a lot going on in here. And uh, as we looked at last, last year, same thing is true in Luke and in Acts. This is some of the most sophisticated writing in the whole New Testament. Uh, Luke has some of the best Greek that you have in the New Testament. Some, again, some of the most sophisticated Greek in the New Testament. Same thing comes over into Acts. The way he puts these narratives together, you know, many people are absolutely baffled by the Gospel of Luke because it doesn't fit the way we normally think the way a narrative would unfold. And we'll talk more about that uh, even as we get into Acts. So with that introduction in mind, turn back to page three then. And let's, let's talk about the kind of the what, the why, and the how uh, related to Acts. And we're going to, again, talk a little bit about Luke, the gospel, and how these tie together. There on page three, why Luke Acts, there's, there's several things just to kind of uh, talk about at the beginning. You have that quote by Paul Borgman there um, at the very beginning. I think I mentioned this several times last year. The Gospel of Luke just absolutely used to baffle me. Uh, and I don't, you know, those of you that studied it last year, we saw a lot of it where 
you think you got something figured out and then Jesus just says something that seems to come out of the blue. And you're thinking, well, why did Luke put these two things back to back? I can't figure out the rhyme or reason of it, you know. And so one of the really big helps was this book by Paul Borgman called uh, The Way According to Luke, here in the whole story of Luke Acts. And I, and I really think he is on to something. And we're going to talk quite a bit about his work uh, today. But there in that book, he, he begins uh, fairly early on with this statement. He says, Luke, Luke Acts is among the greatest of ancient literary works. Though Luke's gospel and acts are generally recognized as accomplished narratives by religious and non-religious readers alike, much of their genius goes unappreciated with the meaning obscured for two basic reasons. We read the two volumes separately and we read silently something meant to be heard. Right, and, and this is really true of all scripture, that, that latter statement. Scripture, all of scripture was meant to be heard, right? Not just read in your mind. And there is a psychological process that happens when you hear something read out loud or when you hear something through your ears than merely reciting it in your mind. And uh, as you know, uh, within the scriptures themselves, uh, one of the writers says, hey, don't, don't forget to pay attention to the public reading of scripture, right? Reading the scriptures out loud. And one of the things that I think has been disastrous in our times is that when we go to church, mostly all that's ever read are just little bits and snippets of scripture. We get a piece of this and a piece of that. And then you get up and y'all bear with me. You get up and you got to give a guy who gives a sermon that's more about what he wants to say about the text than the text in its context and, and giving it the fuller meaning of what's going on. So we have we are living in, as one of my friends says, we are living in the golden age of biblical ignorance even within the church. And, and to me, the foundation of that is we just don't give attention to Scripture, right? The reading of Scripture. Uh, this, this past Sunday, I was teaching a class here at First Event, the Sunday school class, and I was going to do some snippets out of Second Peter over four weeks. And the first day, we just read through the whole letter. It's just, it's just three chapters. You can read it in about 10 minutes. Read the whole thing out loud. Now everybody can hear, oh man, Peter is stirring up all kind of trouble, right? And how all these things fit together. So we're going to read through all of Acts together. And, and we're, we're going to try to read through in, in large chunks to see how these pieces fit together. And as we hear it and as we try to put these things together, we're going to try to tie it all together into a much larger picture. Uh, down at the bottom of page three, I talked a lot about this last year. We're going to reemphasize it time and time again. Luke intended the gospel and Acts to be a unified work. Uh, in his commentary on Acts, a uh, really great commentator named Ben Witherington, he is, he is a Wesleyan, but we won't hold that against him. Um, great insight. Uh, ben Witherington is one of the, 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 I think, one of the most significant living conservative scholars alive today. I don't know he, how, how he has time to do the work that he does, because not only is he incredibly insightful in the scriptures. He has time to read all the stuff in the background and compare it to other work. It's just unbelievable the amount of work that he's put out. But that, that quote at the bottom, just, just to summarize what he um, talks about in Acts, is he talks about some work that was done about writing in the first century. And it was discovered that the book of Acts would fit and almost fill up one complete roll of papyrus that Luke was probably writing on, right? So people got to thinking, oh, well, well, what does that mean? Well, it means there's no way he could have put Luke and Acts together on one papyrus roll. So when he got to the end of Luke, he realizes he's running out of room and he's going to have to start another scroll, right? In other words, he just ran out of paper. That's all that happened. So that is more than likely why Luke and Acts was divided into two separate works. And you, you can see the connection even in what we read today, where Luke starts in Acts with in the first, you know, in the first narrative that I wrote to you. And it's also really interesting that Luke ends with the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And the book of Acts begins just right before the ascension of Jesus, after the resurrection, but right before the ascension. So as we saw last week, the pivotal or last year, the, the pivotal turning point in Luke and Acts is the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That is central to everything that's going to happen uh, in the book of Acts. And it's also central to everything that the gospel was leading up to. So again, all this, all this, 
all this is saying to us is we need to read Luke and Acts together as one complete work, uh, one continuous narrative. Now, any questions or comments on any of that before we get into some of the other text here? Everybody doing okay? Uh, y'all know, first couple of weeks I'm talking real fast until I get the gear down. Hey, Russell. About yeah. why they stuff John between the two? Yeah, I, uh, it's, you know, we are, uh, 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 let, let, me, let me say this to kind of answer that question. The, the, the way our Bible has been ordered together, it's, you know, um, it's not the best way to do it. Let me just say it that way. You know, the, uh, one of the things that, I, that I'm a big believer in is the whole chronological approach to reading through the scriptures. A lot of y'all have done the chronological Bible study and so forth. And as y'all know, the, the Old Testament is not in chronological order. The New Testament's not in chronological order or even any kind of thematic order. So when they put the books together, the, uh, they grouped them more by theme, right? So they gave us the four Gospels and then Acts, which really I wish they had done, you know, uh, Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke, and then Acts. You know, but, you know, who knows what went into all that. The, 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 other, the other thing we're going to see is, and this is especially true in Acts, <laughs> The way they divide the chapters and the verses, there seems to be no rhyme or reason in it. You know, one of the things that I've said over and over again is sometimes one of the biggest hindrances to properly interpret the scriptures is getting hung up over the chapters and the verses. Right. When these things were originally written, Luke didn't have chapters and verses. And there are going to be several places in our outline of Luke that we're going to take one verse and split it in half because it's clearly the end of one thing and the beginning of another. Now. And, and y'all, this, this may be entirely fictional, but I love the story anyway. When, when, they, when, they, were, when they were putting chapters and verses in the Bible, that comes very late. We're, we're talking part of it, 15, 1600s. And there is a, a probably apocryphal story that one of the guys that was doing the chapters and versification often did it while he was riding his horse because he was a circuit riding preacher. And sometimes uh, the, the next verse would come just where the horse hit a bump, and that's where his pen landed. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't have any idea, and it doesn't matter because it's a good story. A lot of times good stories are more important than the truth. You know what I'm saying? Um, but anyway, there's, there's just some weird rhyme and reason that uh, maybe there's some explanation to it, but I, I have no idea, you know. Uh, that's a great question, good question. Anybody else, any questions or comments on any of that? All right, top of page four, um, I want to do, just, just for a minute, uh, Luke 1, 1 through 4, this is the introduction to Luke, but it's also the introduction to Acts. Uh, most people believe, since this is one continuous work, that what Luke says at the beginning of the gospel also applies to the book of Acts. So I just want to spend a couple of minutes uh, talking about that. Luke 1, 1 through 4, very top of page 4. By the way, this year in your notes, I'm going to have the full text of Acts in there for you. So you can, you know, circle words and, and write notes and everything. And also it's for me, it's so much easier to take notes when I have the, the full text in there. So almost everything we're going to be looking at, I'll have in your notes for you. Uh, but also bring your Bibles because we will look at some extra verses and stuff that relate. But Luke 1, 1 through 4, he says, uh, now many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, like the accounts passed on to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning. So it seemed good to me as well, because I followed all these things carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know for certain the things that were taught. Um, a, a couple of things um, about that. First of all, let me, let me just talk very briefly about the author and the audience on page five at the bottom. Uh, I, I take the traditional view that Luke, the beloved physician, wrote Luke and Acts. Uh, Luke was a traveling companion with Paul in his later uh, missionary journeys. And in fact, we're even going to see in Acts that um, in, in the narratives leading up to Luke coming on board with Paul and his other friends, uh, Luke will talk in the, in the third person. But then when he joins, we get into this section where he starts saying, now we did this and we did that. So he actually sees some of the action that takes place. And, and as he comes in with Paul's ministry, it becomes very clear that as he sees the work that Paul's doing, um, that the Lord puts it on his heart to go back and, man, I need to make a record of all these things, you know, and, and we'll talk about that more in just a second. Uh, he writes to Theophilus. 
Notice there in the introduction there at the end of verse 3, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. There's been a lot of uh, speculation about whether or not this was an actual specific person or if this is just, you know, uh, a, a symbolic person. Because the name Theophilus means the one who loves God. So the question is, is this a man that was named Theophilus or is this just a general uh, title that these letters are for anybody who loves God and wants to find out more about Jesus and the movement, right, uh, that Jesus started. Uh, m- my view is, because he calls him most excellent, this is, a, this is a person, this is a specific person that he's writing to. And a lot of people have speculated, we have no information, but uh, Theophilus could have been a, an official within the Roman government. He, the fact that Luke calls him most excellent, he could have been somebody from the you know, upper crust of society. Some people have speculated that he might have been the patron that, uh, that allowed Luke uh, to write Luke and Acts. You know, something that we often don't think about is the, the extreme expense of writing things in the first century. And, and the amount of writing materials that it would take to write something like Luke, of, Luke and Acts is in the thousands of dollars, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars in first century terms. Uh, and so some people think that he might have been Luke's patron that, you know, allowed, you know, that, that, that put forth the, the money that he would need for the papyrus and the writing materials and so forth. We don't have any information, but we, but we do know that Luke is writing to Theophilus. And he said, as he says here at the end, and I think this is really important, he says that he writes an orderly account for him so that you may know for certain the things that you were taught. You see that? That's really important. So Theophilus has been taught the way, right, the teachings of Jesus and what's happening in the early church. And Luke wants to make sure that he knows these things for certain. And and what I think he means by that is so that you can know the historical background and the foundation of these things. That we're just not, and and we'll actually see this in Acts. Uh, Several times there's a statement like, look, we're not just following cleverly devised myths. We're telling you this is what happened, right? This is what actually happened. And so Luke, um, Luke is, is, is writing all that down to record it and so that Theophilus will have this uh, unbroken narrative of the things that have happened to, to get to where they are uh, in, that, in that specific time there in the mid-first century. Also, I've been looking for this quote for years and I cannot find it. Now, I, did, I, I thought it was Aristotle for a long time, but Google has failed me. I don't know. <laughs> one, of the, one of the Greek writers... Uh, and I'll tell you what, when, when Google fails you, you're in real trouble. Y- y'all know that by now, right? If, you're, you know, if, you're, if your computer assistant you know, can't find it and Google can't find it, well, it just doesn't exist, right? So, but uh, there was one of the Greek writers, he was talking about uh, rhetoric and addressing people and how to communicate with an audience. And, and he made, a, uh, I think, a profound statement. He said, if, if you're talking to an audience of people and you try to communicate with everybody, you will connect with nobody. But if you address a specific person, you will connect with everybody, right? And, and that's, that's really true if you think about it. Uh, in fact, in seminary, one of the things they taught us is you can't preach to a crowd. You gotta preach to one person in that crowd, right? And um, who that person is changes depending on where you are, right? Whenever I, whenever I preach or speak to a group that I don't know anything about. Now, this is not applying to y'all, right? You said that right up front. Y'all, y'all are here at midday on Tuesday to do Bible study. Y'all are in the upper class, right? So it's not important. But if I'm going to a church and I don't know who's there, I assume a couple of things as I'm preaching. I'm preaching to the guy that does not know the Bible and does not even know that he needs to know the Bible. Right. So I assume biblical ignorance. I don't assume that he knows anything. One of the first classes I had when I got out of seminary came back and I was teaching part time at Crichton College. Man, I, man, I was fired up, ready to go. And I was going through and we were going through the Bible. And uh, I mentioned Adam and I was talking about Adam and Eve. And about halfway through class, kid raised his hand and said, well, wait a minute. Now, who is Adam and Eve? <laughs> And I remember thinking, okay, we got to go back. Got to put, put, take it back. It's good. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Let's slow down. Take it back a notch. Right, yeah. So, so as, as Luke writes to Theophilus, he has a specific person in mind. And, and I think the way we should read Luke and Acts is simply this way. These books 
or for somebody who have been taught the basic teachings of Christianity, but now they need the historical foundation of how all these things came to be, right? And so that's what this book is, these books are really good for. Um, Luke would be, you know, Luke and Acts would be a great introductory study for people who have become new Christians. You know, maybe they've been believers for about a year. Well, it'd be great to take them through Luke and Acts. Um, and so anyway, that, that, that seems to be who Luke is addressing here and the type of person that Luke is addressing here. And so uh, there's some quotes about all that for you to read a little bit deeper. But uh, we talked quite a bit about that last year, and I think you get the idea. So I'm not going to say much more about that. Uh, any, any questions or comments on that so far before we move on? All right, back on page four then, what Luke says, uh, at, again, in verse one, now many have undertaken to, to compile an account of the things. I'm, I'm not going to go into too much detail on this, um, this year, but Luke is part of what we call the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason we call them that synoptic, right, it means to look at together, and the reason is, if you look at those three Gospels, they are all very common. They're, they're very similar in their content and their layout, right? You read the Gospel of John, and it is nothing like those other three, right? If, if you've read through all four of the Gospels, very, very different. Starts in a different place. John is writing quite a bit after those first three Gospel writers wrote. And John is one of the 12. I, I think he's thinking, you know, they left out some of the best stuff. Uh, so, he, you know, he was there, heard Jesus teach. And so... Almost everything that's in John is not in the other three gospel uh, narratives. But in, in the three that you have, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's, there's huge debate and huge question over the sequence of who wrote first. And depending on who you talk to, you're going to get a different answer. So I'm just going to give you my spiel on it. And, you know, it's not going to do a whole lot either way. But, but my view is Mark is probably the earliest gospel to write. And he's probably writing his gospel somewhere in the late 50s, early 60s. And tr tradition has Mark being uh, really influenced by Peter. Uh, we know that they were together in part of Peter's ministry and Mark's ministry. And so uh, Mark is probably the, the first gospel writer to write. And the reason for that, this is crazy. It sounds dumb when I say it, but because he's the shortest, right? If when you're rewriting something, you generally don't take something that's bigger and make it shorter, right? Usually you write something because you think, oh, I want to do it my way and I need to fill it out a little bit. Those of you that knew Tom Murray, Tom Murray, used to, when I first started working with Tom, Tom would say, hey, Stacy, send me over that first Milk to Meat workbook. I want to cut it down a little bit. And I'm like, Tom, I don't want to send this over to you because you're going to make it longer. You're going you're gonna... to, listen, I've already spent five weeks working on this thing. You're going to mess up all my work. And I was no, 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 really. There's just a few things I want to come back. I'd send it to him. He would teach class. He would come in after class. He'd say, Stacy, they're just not getting it. They're, well, I must be communicating something wrong, but I can see the look in their eyes. They're just not getting it. And I'm like, well, Tom, I don't know that that's true, right? You can't always tell what people are thinking just by looking in their eyes. So after all that ring roll, Tom would send the workbook back and it'd be five times as long, right? <laughs> And uh, so when you're writing and editing, you generally tend to make something longer and build on something. And that, that seems to make, make a, a good case. Also, uh, most of Mark is contained in Matthew and also in Luke. So it's, it's clear that they were building on these traditions as they were going up and, and writing their own forms of the Gospels. So my view is that Mark probably wrote first, then Matthew builds on what Mark has, has done, and then Luke comes along, and it's very clear that, that Luke is drawing from both Matthew and Mark, but he's putting it in different order and re rearranging some things and doing some things different. And that is, that is significant because then that would put... Uh, Luke probably writing his gospel and Acts somewhere in the mid-60s. And I think he writes them before, clearly I think it's before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But also uh, the book of Acts ends with Paul being in prison in Rome. And, and that's where we end Paul's journey. Now Luke has been with Paul in those latter ministry uh, efforts and so forth. And uh, we know from tradition that Paul is killed in Rome somewhere around AD 66, right? So somewhere right around the time that Luke is probably writing these. And it, it seems to me that if Paul had already been killed, 
Luke probably would have put that in Acts. He, he would have made some connection. But the last we see of Paul is that he's in house arrest in Rome and he's preaching Jesus and he's preaching the gospel. Every, everything's going according to plan. So, so Luke is probably finishing these up somewhere in the mid-60s, uh, along and through there. And, and the reason that that's going to be significant is because Luke is going to touch on some things that I think probably he and Paul and the other apostles are seeing what's happening in Israel, and they are beginning to get the idea, oh man, we may be seeing the fulfillment of some of the very things that Jesus taught us on. Uh, taught about with the destruction of Jerusalem and the coming of the end of the age and some of these other things. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we get on over into Acts. But here um, he, he says that many have undertaken to a compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And y'all, I'll, I'll just say this in passing. Y'all probably know this, but the Matthew, Mark and Luke were not the only people that were writing gospels or writing stories about Jesus or, uh, in the late first century. You have the uh, coming in of the Gnostic Gospels, uh, which, are, which is a, a, a perverted form of Christianity. And you have things like the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, within that, you have in that Gospel, you have Jesus in illicit relationships with some of the other disciples. Right. You know, and the liberals love those because they say, OK, now this is what was really going on. You know, and it's just it's just a big old mess. But. There were also sources we know that Matthew and Mark were drawn on, even Paul himself. Uh, one of those famous examples is in, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about making a collection for the poor in Jerusalem. One of the things we'll, we'll touch on in Acts. And, and uh, in that context, as he's making a theological case for supporting the poor, he says, just as our Lord Jesus taught us, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now you go and you try to look that up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it doesn't show up anywhere. Right. So so Paul has a source for some of the teachings of Jesus that didn't make it into one of our Gospels. And so we we know that there were uh, collections of the teachings of Jesus. Right. That that maybe became the source material that Luke is drawing on. All of those have been lost to history uh, because the Lord didn't see fit, you know, to keep those for us. Um, the books that we have are the inspired books. These are the ones that the Lord has preserved so that we can know for certain the things that Jesus actually taught and did. So, so here, as, as Luke says that, he realizes, you know, there are many other people that have written accounts of these things. Um, had a, a, another question that came up in the class yesterday is, you know, how much, would, how much would Luke have really known about Matthew and Mark? Well, again, it's clear that he's drawing on them as he writes. Uh, but how much would, you know, the other, how much would Peter have known about Paul? I mean, how much did, how much communication was, was there between the early church? And one of the great examples that we have is at the end of 2 Peter, where uh, Peter is closing out that letter. Uh, 2 Peter is the last letter that Peter's going to write. Uh, it's at the end of his life. He knows that he's about to go to be with the Lord. And so it's kind of his last word to the church. And there in the last uh, chapter, in chapter 3, he says, listen, as, as long as I'm alive, I'm going to continue to remind you of all these things that we've been teaching you, just as our beloved brother Paul has done in all of his letters, in which are many things that are difficult to understand. <laughs> Paul, Peter does not only know that Paul is writing letters, he's read some of those letters because he knows they're difficult to understand. And everybody says, amen, right? If Peter thinks they're hard to understand, then... You know, we're doing pretty good when we try to get into some of those things and realize, man, these are difficult. Uh, and then Peter says something else incredible on that. He says, and also um, the unstable and the, the, uh, the, uh, the immature and the unstable, they twist these letters as they do the rest of Scripture. And the word that he uses there for rest puts Paul's letters on an equal standing with the Hebrew Scriptures. Right. So not only is Peter aware of Paul's letters, not only has he read them, parts of them, we don't know what all he's read, but also there's also this understanding that those letters are on the same standing as Scripture. Right. So they're very aware of the work of the Spirit in this time. And, you know, a lot of us think that when, when you look back in this, they're kind of in the dark ages and nobody really knows what's going on. But let me remind y'all, and everybody gets offended when I say this, right? We are the dumbest form of humanity that has ever been on planet Earth, right? We are, not the people in the past. We are, and it's because of things like this that diminish our brain power and rot it 
time in and time out. There were men and women in the first century that would have heard Luke read out loud one time and they would have had it committed to memory. And we know that's true because that still happens today in oral cultures. There are men and women that are Muslim that have the entire Quran memorized simply by hearing it read out loud. Right? Hmm. <laughs> and we wonder why we have all the problems we have, right? Um, so, so here, uh, these, these things were passed on and these things were compiled in a very, very uh, sophisticated way. And, and there was already um, a general knowledge within the church and how the spirit was working and how the spirit was moving. And they were, it seems to be that they were very aware of the things that were going on. Luke, as we, as we talked about, Luke goes back and he, um, he does a lot of inve investigation. In fact, he says that if you look, um, if you look in verse 2 there, I'm going to come back to that fulfilled thing in just a second. In verse 2, he says, just like all the accounts passed on to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning. So Luke has had these accounts that are passed on to him from the very eyewitnesses who were there. And last, last year, as we look into Luke, Luke has the story of Zacharias in the temple when Gabriel appears to him. And he has the whole narrative of the interchange with what they said, the conversation that there's only two people in there, Zechariah and Gabriel. And last time I checked, Gabriel was not submitting himself to, to questioning, right? So he has to have gotten that story from Zechariah. Uh, Mary, Luke is the only one that, that gives the narrative that when Gabriel comes and talks to Mary. Where did he get that from? He had to get it from Mary, right? So, so Luke has been very careful to go back and investigate and talk to the eyewitnesses that, that these things happened to. Um, we'll, we'll say more about that in Acts as we move on. Any idea who the us there passed on to us? I was just about to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, and, and that, I want to do that first thing first, but if you notice, he says at the end of first verse 1, uh, to give an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Right now, this is really important. First of all, that word fulfill. Um, there's a quote there on page four, again, from Ben Witherington. And um, in fact, let me I wasn't going to read this, but let me read it because he, he says it better than I can. Right below the middle of the page, the bullet point to compile an account of the things fulfilled. Uh, Witherington says this. He says, I thus conclude that Luke is using a form of shorthand here to speak of the salvation events promised in Scripture which have been fulfilled or accomplished during the era beginning with the coming of John the Baptist. This comports with the references in both volumes to the fulfillment of Scripture and the other divine promises. Luke will write the story about the crucial events which began the Messianic age in which the Scriptures would be fulfilled. So what Luke sees happening is the fulfillment of the promises that foretold the things that were actually going to happen. And in fact, if you remember Luke last year, when Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple, the words that Gabriel says to Zechariah are the last words of Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament era. Gabriel, when he addresses Zechariah, picks up right where Malachi left off. Right? Your son is going to be the one that will turn the hearts of the fathers to their sons. He's the one that will prepare the way for the Lord who's coming, right? In other words, Zechariah, this is it. Everything the prophets talked about, your son is going to jumpstart this whole, this whole thing, right? Imagine getting that news, wow. you know? <laughs> yeah. And Zechariah, just dumb as dirt. Well, how can I know? Because you know, I'm old. My wife is old. We're not able to have children, Right. Uh, we're we're well advanced in our years. And and as you all know, is, is there any story in the Old Testament where the Lord makes it possible for old folks to have kids? <laughs> Zechariah wouldn't be there without Abraham and Sarah, whose very problem was. Right. So that that's not a problem. Right? And then he's contrasted with Mary that when she asked a similar question, well, well, Gabriel, how can this happen? Because. I haven't known a man. I'm a virgin. And he says, well, Mary, the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and overshadow you. And therefore, the one that you're going to carry, he will be the Holy One of God. And they will call him literally the Son of God. And Mary doesn't say, oh, 
That's crazy talk, right? She says, then let it be done to me exactly as the Lord has said. Right? Unbelievable. Teenage girl shames the priest who ought to have known better, right? And so we're, we're, we're going to get more things like that, that. That's great storytelling, right? That is great storytelling, right? The priest gets it wrong. The young girl who didn't know any better, she gets it right. We're going to see those kind of things all through Acts as well. Um, so here, Luke, Luke see that, sees these events as the fulfillment of divine promises, of, of the prophetic word coming out of the Hebrew scriptures. The us then, fulfilled among us, uh, Luke sees himself as part of that. And like I said earlier, when we get to the latter part of Acts, when he comes on with Paul, we're going to see that Luke becomes a witness firsthand of these incredible things that happens as Paul is going out into these Gentile realms and he's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection and people are coming to faith and they're believing in it. You know, one of the things that I that I uh, that I love about liberal theologians is how absolutely ridiculous some of their arguments are, because one of the one of the fundamental tenets of liberal Christian theology is, is that this is all stuff that people have made up. Right. A, a man made religion that people have made up and it just kind of caught on because it gave people hope and, you know, whatever. You know, but here. Here's the thing. As they're going out and preaching, right, the early gospel, there, there's, a, there's a couple of things that are foundational to what they're going to teach. Number one, that this man, Jesus, is the Messiah. And oh, yeah, he has no human father. God is his literal father, right? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm starting my own religion, I don't think I'm going to start there. <laughs> because because it, it, it takes an inordinate amount of irrationality to believe that in the sense of what kind of have you ever seen anybody born by God himself right I mean it's it strains credibility right and then on the other end you have to pair that with the most important thing that he was killed he was murdered he died on a cross they hung him on a tree three days later he was resurrected from the dead never to die again now, if I'm starting to religion, I don't know that I'm starting with those things because that makes no sense. You are asking people to believe in some impossible event. And as we know, as we get into Paul's letters, Paul it illuminates the whole thing as people became believers where he says, listen, you can't say Jesus is Lord except by the work of the Holy Spirit. The only way you can become a believer is if the Holy Spirit opens your minds to understand what's going on. And if you remember, that's exactly the way the end of Luke uh, came uh, after the resurrection. Jesus appears to the disciples. And as he's talking to the disciples, in fact, he, you know, as he's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he begins and he teaches, teaches them everything about him, beginning in the law of Moses and going through the prophets. You remember, and they get to the place where they're going to stay. And he says, I, all right, good to talk to y'all. I'm going on. The, no, you got to stay with us, right? And he comes in, they're all sitting around the table, and he breaks the bread, and immediately the eyes open, oh, it's and he disappears out of the sight. Now, listen, God has a great sense of humor, right? It's fantastic. Disappears. They all run back to Jerusalem. You remember this? And they go, they tell Peter, we've, we've seen him. We just, he was on us with the road. And, and, they, and, and one of them says something great. He says, and he, as, he, his, he, as he was explaining the scriptures to us, didn't our hearts burn within us? Right. They realized he's teaching us the truth. And then Jesus shows up. Right. And he and he begins to teach them about everything that was talked about him in the law and in the prophets and in the Psalms. And as he's teaching them, it says, and he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. I love that statement because this is what that tells us. And Luke makes a big point of this. Up until that point, those disciples had no idea what was actually going on. Right. This is something that will blow your mind. This is also one of my favorite statements. This is in Matthew. This is not in Luke. In Matthew 28, and everybody skips this. This is one of the most important statements in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, as you know, is the big discipleship chapter, right? Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, right? You know that? But as you're getting to that, it says, Now the eleven went up to the mountain um, that he instructed them to go up, uh, go up to, and they all worshipped. But some doubted. After the resurrection, 
the 11 apostles that were handpicked by Jesus. They've just spent about three years with him, right? They have seen him crucified. They've seen him resurrected from the dead. And now as they see him standing in front of them, they're worshiping, but some of them are doubting. They still don't get it, right? And I'm going to say something that goes a little bit further. Peter does not become a true believer until a couple of chapters into the book of Acts. <laughs> Right? We get this idea that, 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 that they had become believers full on, early on, and then no problems from there on out. But, but what we see in Luke and Acts, this is why I love Luke and Acts, is we see these people develop. We see these apostles develop from just a little mustard grade seed of faith to become Peter, the rock, as we get to the end of Acts. When you read First and Second Peter, those letters that he writes at the end of his life, that Peter looks nothing like the man that you have in the Gospels or even in the first chapters of Acts. Who he's become is unbelievable in terms of what he's writing, in terms of what he's saying, right? And so when Luke talks about that us there, he's talking about he's been firsthand to see all these incredible works that God has done through Paul and probably through Peter as well, through the other apostles. He's seen the Spirit poured out, people healed, people come into faith, all kind of signs and wonders. And so Luke uh, realizes that he's part of this incredible movement that is literally changing the world, that everybody needs to know about. And, th and that, that comes to the why of the writing here in just a second that we'll talk about. Anybody, questions or comments on, on any of that so far? Yeah, Ann? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. In, um, in, in, in Col I think it's Colossians where uh, Paul is talking about him and he, he, um, he, he gives a list. Oh, I, I can't remember the re reference. I, I think it's in Colossians, but he gives a list. He says, and, and they're also among us brothers of the circumcision. And he lists off two or three names. And he said, and then also there was Luke and Demas, I think. And it's clear that he's probably separating them from the Jewish believers. So uh, I think Luke is probably a Gentile. Yeah, the, the, that seems to be where the evidence goes. And I've, had, I've heard arguments both ways, but that one passage to me is fairly compelling. You know, uh, the, the other reason that I think uh, Luke is probably a Gentile is that he is, he, how do, his writing is just very Greek. You know, it's very Roman, it's very Greek. Like I said, he's got some most sophisticated Greek in the New Testament. Uh, he's clearly very well educated, very well spoken because he writes well. Somebody that can write well usually can speak well, you know. Um, so, yeah, so it, it seems that he is probably a Gentile, uh, which would make sense, you know, that the Lord would set apart a Gentile to write the history of the early church because, um, well, in fact, that's a great segue into, if, if you look, let me, let me touch on this. Look at the bottom of page four. As, as, as Luke is writing, and I just wanted to introduce this because we're going to come back to this several more times. There at the very bottom of page four, key word concept, Luke's motive in writing. Um, as we're working through, there seems to be three questions in the background of Luke's mental narrative framework. Uh, and these are important. Number one, if Jesus' way is the plan of God, then why do the Jews reject it? And this becomes a major question in the book of Romans, it becomes kind of a minor question in the book of Galatians. Um, Jew and Gentile being united in one body becomes the theme of the first half of the letter to the Ephesians, right? So as Luke has traveled around with Paul all this time, he has picked up on the fact that we are living in this time where the Lord is doing this work, where the way that becomes the early church, it is Jew and Gentile united together in one body. And we're going to see that tension develop all through the book of Acts until we get to chapter 15 in Acts with the Jerusalem Council, where uh, the, the gospel is opened up to the Gentiles. You remember Peter is sent to Cornelius. Uh, and, 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 and that's where the, that, that chapter, chapter 11, that's where the light comes on for Peter. I, I love that chapter because uh, <laughs> you remember Peter's always putting his foot in his mouth. Right. He's always saying the right thing and the wrong thing all at the same time. Right. Uh, when Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say I am? You remember this? 
Who do the people say I am? Well, some think you're Elijah. Some think you're John the Baptist back from the dead, right? Some think you're this, some think you're that. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah. And then he adds this, the son of the living God, right? Boom, he got it right. He's, that's it, right? And then immediately Jesus takes him down a notch. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, don't get too high and mighty. You didn't figure that out on your own, right? <laughs> Unless the Father had given that to you, you wouldn't have got it, right? And, and then he goes on to say, and you will be Peter the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And that's, we're, we're going to see that. Peter becomes a foundational person in the early church. He is the first in all the list of the 12 apostles. Uh, Jesus loves him. And, and, I, and I think he loves him so much because he is the kind of guy that is going to try to do the right thing no matter what it costs. Even if I'm wrong, I'm still thinking I'm going to do the right thing and we're going to get it done. Right? That's the way Peter is. And so he, he, he grows in the grace and knowledge of Jesus as we go through the early chapters of Acts. But one of the questions... That, that, that is generated in all that is if Jesus' way is the plan of God, then why do the Jews reject it? And so that's going to be in the background of a lot of things that we're going to see in the early, uh, early chapters of Acts. The second thing that's going to be in the background of um, Acts, uh, if Jesus' way is the plan of God, then why do the Romans oppose it? So that's going to be another thing we're going to see. They're going to be the early church is going to be not only in contention with Israel, but it's going to be in contention with the Roman authorities. So if, if this is truth, then why is everybody against y'all? Why are you, you know, why are y'all under so much opposition? And then the, the last thing, the why, why uh, is the way, Jew and Gentile united in Christ, the true work of God? Um, and so those are all questions that Luke is going to be answering for Theophilus. As we go through, uh, very, very important uh, questions. And we're going to see those in the background of almost everything we read, uh, all throughout Acts, really. Uh, because, the, and especially that last one, where I was headed a minute ago, is this issue of the Jew and the Gentile coming together in one body, in this, in this church, in this assembly that the Lord God is putting together. That's going to be one of the major um, conundrums in the early chapters. And as, as I said, Peter was sent to Cornelius to open the uh, gospel to the Gentiles. And if you remember there, like I was saying, Peter always says the right thing and the wrong thing all at the same time. Oh, I was, I was getting to when Jesus, uh, right after Peter made his confession, that was when Jesus started to tell him, now we're going to Jerusalem and when I get up there, they're going to torture me and beat me and kill me. And remember what Peter says? No, 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 Lord, that ain't happening. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan, right? <laughs> right on the heels of getting everything right. He, same thing in Acts 11. Peter has this dream where he sees a great net coming down out of heaven with all kind of unclean, got catfish and shrimp in it, right? All this unkosher food coming down. Here it comes, and he hears the voice that he knows, the voice of the Lord. Peter, take up, kill, and eat. And in the vision, Peter says, no, sir. Right? No unclean food has ever gone into my mouth. I'm not about to eat any of that. And Peter says, uh, the Lord says to Peter, Peter, what I have made clean, you cannot reject. And he wakes up from the dream, remember this, and he realizes he's being called to go talk to this Gentile, Cornelius. And Cornelius has been having dreams and visions, right? And so Peter is sent to Cornelius' house. He gets there and says, I'm not sure why I'm here. Y'all are Gentiles. And as y'all know, Jews don't have a lot of dealing with the Gentiles. And Cornelius is like, well, I think you're here to tell us about the great works of God, right? And Peter tells them the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, right? Uh, and he's taken back. Wow, well, Spirit fell on them just like it fell on us. But, but before that happens... Uh, when Peter comes in, they all fall down and begin to worship him. And Peter says, y'all get up. I'm a man just like y'all are. Right? And later, when he's recounting this at the council in Jerusalem, he says, listen, y'all, I, I know now that God shows no favoritism because the, the Gentiles have been brought in in the same way that we Jews were brought in. Holy Spirit was given to both of them. And so this, this issue of Jew and Gentile related together in the early church is going to be critical things happening in the first chapters of Acts. How do we all work together? 
Paul is going to address it in his letters. And we're going to go look at some of that uh, as we get into Acts during the time when Paul would have been writing some of those letters. Uh, not an easy thing because, you know, you, you get the church together and hear the, the Jews are, you know, they've been under the kosher law their whole life. And man, the Gentiles show up, they got pulled pork and uh, catfish and shrimp. How, how is this pickle pig's feet, right? Man, how is this going to work? And so the whole issue becomes, how are we going to work together? And Acts is going to get us into some of that, into that controversy. Um, I, th- I, think, I think that's all I was going to say about that. Uh, anybody, any questions or comments on, on any of that uh, before we go much further? Oh, good. We've got just enough time to finish up here. Um, anybody? Anything? All right. Uh, bottom of page six, top of page seven, what type of literature is Luke Acts? I will let you read that because I'm going to, I'm going to come back to this idea several more times as we get into the first chapters of Acts. Um, uh, if you read a commentary on Acts, they're going to, they're going to get into this question of, is, is Luke and Acts a biography or history? Is it a biography of Jesus or is it a history? And there's some subtle differences in that. Uh, and let me just say that, that my view is, is that Luke writes from this historical perspective that was well known in the first century. And one of the goals of a historical work is to show how events have happened or people have come along that have changed the course of history. And if you don't know those people and if you don't understand those events, you're going to be out without a clue as to where things are actually going. Right. So for Luke, as he writes Luke and Acts, the central thing that's happened is Jesus, the Messiah, has come. He has died for our sins and he's been raised from the dead. He has ascended into heaven and he's going to return again. That's the central thing that's happened. And if you don't know that, you're not going to be able to make sense out of history whatsoever. Right. I I was listening to a podcast two or two or three weeks back and uh, it was it was two unbelievers talking and they they were they had gotten on Christianity somehow. And one of them said, you know, Christianity has a lot of things, you know, love and the self-sacrifice. They're good. He said, I just can't. He said, I just can't get into that whole Jesus being raised from the dead thing. Like, that's the thing I can't get my mind around. Like, I just how do you even prove something like that? And the other guy said, yeah, that's that's the big one for me, too. Like, that's just almost unbelievable, you know, and I don't see how anybody could really believe that. And then he said this, he said, but, you know, I've thought, if that actually happened, that would have changed everything. Right? I'm like, you got it, bro. That's right. Yeah, thumbs up. That's, that's, what, that's what Luke is saying here, right? Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. That changes everything. And if you don't realize that and you don't realize the implications of it, you're not going to be in the right course in history. And so that's what we're going to get into in Acts. He's going to continue with that, um, with that, with that major uh, theme that he developed all the way from Luke over into Acts. And, you know, the way they're going to talk about that message is this is good news. I got great news for you, right? And this is what is great about it. And so we're going to see the, the apostles and, uh, in their sermons and their preaching. They're going to preach this, this good news as it goes along. Finally, on page 7, what is the structure of Luke-Acts? We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. Uh, there at the bottom of, of the page, um, just, just a couple of statements out of this quote. You can, you can read that whole quote, very insightful. But this ties into to, to some of the things that we really developed in Luke last year and some parallel themes that are going to uh, come over into Acts. And the, the very last bolded paragraph there at the very bottom of page 7 Uh, Witherington says one can say then that the gospel focuses on the vertical up and down the social scale universalization of the gospel right so if you remember in Luke we saw that everybody is welcomed into the gospel Jesus pays specific attention to the poor and the outcast and the women who have no hope right everybody else that the culture and society had thrown out baby with the bathwater Jesus welcomed into his ministry Jesus would go and he would touch lepers, right? Now think about that, right? Everything in the law, right? Everything that was taught in Moses, you're not supposed to touch a leper, right? Jesus would touch them and heal them. He would infect them with his holiness, right? He would infect them with his life. Incredible to think of it that way. In fact, 
Peter is going to call Jesus in Acts the author of life. <laughs> he is life. So when he touches you, guess what he infects you with? He infects you with life. When this is, I have never seen this until this morning. And you feel so, you know, you, I feel so dumb when I read something a thousand times. And the 350,000th time you read it, that one word sticks out. And like, what? What is it? When, when Peter and John are arrested the second time and they put him in jail and the angel comes and opens him up and sends him out. You, you all remember this story in Acts? And as the angel uh, uh, breaks him free, he says, listen, go back into the temple and continue to tell everybody about this life. I've never seen that before. This life? What is that? And then it hit me. Well, yeah, everything going on here, right? And they're out healing people, right? Peter and all the rest of them, they're healing, doing works and wonders, right? So really, really important. Uh, that all begins in Luke, where, where the gospel comes uh, to everybody, from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. Um, then in Acts, we focus on the horizontal universalization to all peoples throughout the empire. This is the early work that becomes fulfilled in the vision in the book of Revelation where we see worship before the throne in heaven. And who's there? People from every nation, every tribe, every language, every tongue. They're there praising God. That work begins right here in the book of Acts. Right? Now, whenever I read through these things, I think about what if I were Peter? What if you're Paul? Do you, do you have any idea the magnitude of what you're a part of, you know? Do you, I mean, I mean, think about Paul right now in heaven. Here we are 2,000 years later. Luke, let's, let's take Luke. Luke in heaven right now with the Lord, with Paul, with Peter, with all of them. And the Lord says, look down there at that class at Tuesday noon in, 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 in Memphis, Tennessee, the furthest place you can get from civilized, civilization in the entire world. Backwaters of civilization and stuff. Look at them down there. Luke, you know what they're doing? They are studying the things you wrote. Yeah. 2,000 years later. Do they have any idea the scope of what's going on? Right? I think Luke does. Because he says these are the things that were fulfilled among us. And these are things that, that were being worked out. These are incredible things that God did. And you and I read them not just as myths or things that they made up. We read these things as history. This is what happened. Right? When we hear of Peter healing a man born blind, we don't think, well, it's just a clever story. No, that happened. Right? When we read about Jesus and the resurrection and him showing up again in Acts, it's not stuff they just made up. That's, that's what happened. And that's what Luke has given us here. Next week, as we start out, I'm going to talk about the structure of Luke Acts on page eight, the, the chiastic structure. Uh, I talked about this last year. And, and I'll, I'll start there next week because it'll be a good place to start with uh, what we're going to be getting into. But basically, Luke and Acts, as you look at them together, they follow a very, um, very sophisticated geographic uh, ordering in the larger parts. The, the story in Luke begins in the remotest parts of the earth, so to speak, in Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. Then it moves down into Samaria and then Judea and then Jerusalem. Everything comes together in Jerusalem and then everything just backs, backs its way back out. The, the apostles go from Jerusalem back into Judea, Samaria, and then at the end of Acts, we're in the remotest parts of the earth. Paul is in the Roman Empire. He's in the, the capital of the Roman Empire preaching Jesus and the kingdom. So we'll, we'll talk about that structure uh, next week because it's really important in order to understand the genius of Luke Acts. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-blowing uh, how well put together this, this whole thing is. Lastly, uh, pages 9, 10, and 11, I've given you a chronology of the New Testament there, just some basic um, events and time periods because as we're getting into these very historical uh, sections. It's going to be important for us to see what's going on, you know, in the background, when the missionary journey takes place, what year that was. And so I've, I've given you that up front so we can have that as a reference as we go through. And we'll, we'll come back to that several more times as we go along. All right, y'all, we're a little bit over. Let me go ahead and pray for us. If you have any questions, uh, I'll stick around for a few minutes and talk to anybody that needs uh, to talk. But let me go ahead and get us on out of here for everybody that needs to get back to work. 
um, and turn us loose. Father, we thank you for all the ways you bless us and provide for us and sustain us and guide us and direct us and give us your word. And I, I pray this year as we study together that we'll all be encouraged and built up and um, be given a deeper love for you and for our Lord Jesus, because that's what ultimately every book that you've given to us uh, is meant to do. Um, just like uh, Paul taught Timothy, all of our teaching, uh, the goal of all of our teaching is love that comes from a pure heart and a sincere faith. And so uh, we want to keep that in mind as we're going through. And we thank you that you've given us everything we need in order to do that. So I pray that you'd bless all these who are taking part out of their day to come study together with us and that you'll knit our hearts together in love as we fellowship together as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, with a bond that transcends this life uh, and has significance for us not only in this world but also in the kingdom to come. And we thank you for these blessings for Jesus' great namesake. Amen.